welcome to the Volvo Diaries with host Dr. Amanda Selk, bringing you the 101 on Volvo Vaginal Health. So today we're going to talk to Dr. Rochelle Jacobson, a gynecologist from Toronto, about graft versus host disease or GVHD. Hi, Dr. Jacobson. Hi, thanks so much for having me again. So do you want to tell us what GVHD is? Sure. So graft-versus-host disease is the name of a syndrome or disease that affects women or patients who've undergone an allogeneic stem cell transplant. It is something that occurs when donor T-cells mount an immune response to recipient tissues that are recognized as foreign. Traditionally, it was classified as acute or chronic based on the time from transplantation. And we see a unique set of characteristics in the vulva and vagina in women who have this clinical presentation that we attribute to vulvovaginal graft-versus-host disease. Do you find a lot of people don't know about this disease? For sure. I mean, even people who've gone through medical school, maybe they remember hearing something about graft-versus-host disease, but they may not specifically know what it is or who it affects. And then when you get to the nitty-gritty of genital graft-versus-host disease, and in women in particular, there is a real paucity both in literature but also in clinical understanding of the condition and how to recognize and treat it. Are the stem cell transplant patients usually counseled about this? They're counseled certainly about graft-versus-host disease as a potential complication. That's not counseling that I do. I don't see them before they have their uh, transplantation. And GVHD in general is looked for and assessed for as a multi-system problem at subsequent visits. And in Toronto, certainly, we're getting better and better at asking and assessing for symptoms of genital graft-versus-host disease. But um, there's probably more comfort in having a gynecologist or somebody who specializes in vulvar disease or in women's health assess women for the presentation of genital GVHD as opposed to the more um, organ-specific presentations. I've heard about places in the world where, you know, ideally as part of their workup with their cancers, they're sent to a gynecologist to discuss, and so they know what to look for, and some of them are told to... I love it. Try to have sex every week or put a dilator in. But when you're dealing with a cancer, I'm not sure how reasonable that is. But I have heard about that happening. Yeah, and I mean, there are a couple of dedicated clinics that are interdisciplinary between oncology and gynecology, specifically in Australia and in Israel, where these problems are assessed for regularly. Women are asked about their sexual functioning and about the other gynecologic sequelae of stem cell transplants at their subsequent visits. There's actually a 2014 consensus statement from the NIH that has some appendices, you know, at the very, very end about how to assess for genital GVHD in a woman and what kind of surveillance is recommended for um, the specific problems that affect women and in particular premenopausal women who undergo stem cell transplants. So why don't we talk about some of those things? So what do the patients complain of and what do you do to assess them? So... Apart from just genital GVHD, women who have stem cell transplants, specifically allogeneic stem cell transplants, which means from an unrelated donor, are very likely to undergo premature menopause. Over 90% of them will have premature menopause. 
in and around the time of their stem cell transplant, it's very common to have thrombocytopenia and also to have anovulatory cycles. And women can have profound abnormal bleeding, but because of their medical comorbidities and also the fact that they're typically admitted under their hematologic oncologist and not under gynecology, there's a real variation in the way the bleeding can be treated and the optimal management for the bleeding problems. Once the bleeding is taken care of and they're discharged from hospital and out of that thrombocytopenic period, the premature menopause tends to set in and women may not notice that the symptoms they're experiencing are related to menopause as opposed to to their chemo and to their stem cell transplant. So things like hot flashes, fevers, you know, they can have a lot of uh, similarity in presentation, but the symptoms persist. And then most women aren't thinking about having sex when they're first recovering from their stem cell transplant, so they may not notice that they have dyspruenia or that they have vaginal dryness until they're well away from their stem cell transplant and starting to feel on the road to recovery. Because in my opinion, once they start asking about having sex, that's probably a good sign that they're on the road to recovery. Um, women who have had stem cell transplants and are taking immune suppressant medications are particularly high risk for HPV associated disease. So that's another sort of set of gynae problems that affects these women. And then there's also the, um, genital GVHD. So a lot of these women after their transplants, you said they go into menopause because they have all the dryness and burning and that sort of thing. How do you differentiate that from GVHD? Like what happens with the GVHD people in addition? So when you see a woman with vaginal or vulvar complaints who's had specifically an allogeneic stem cell transplant, you have a high index of suspicion that they might have both problems. And fortunately, treating the menopause is also part of treating the GVHD in the vagina. So if there's dryness and adhesive disease associated with GVHD, even if they weren't menopausal, it would respond well to estrogen therapy. So you can't go wrong by treating a woman who's had an allogeneic stem cell transplant and now has vulvar and vaginal problems with a little bit of local estrogen, whether you're mitigating their menopausal genitourinary syndrome of menopause or their vaginal dryness associated with GVHD. Can you explain what you mean by adhesive disease? Yeah, so really the hallmark of GVHD is when women start to develop adhesions within the vagina. Essentially, the vagina gets very sticky. You can get a complete occlusion of the top of the vagina. Sometimes you can't see the cervix at all and some vaginal shortening as well. It makes it really difficult to assess them for their potential HPV-associated disease. And that's where HPV testing can actually be really, really helpful if you can't necessarily get to the cervix. In addition to the dryness that can be menopause-associated or GVHD-associated, they tend to get filmy bands of granulation tissue in the vagina that are filmy adhesions, or sometimes they can have really bad, thick vaginal stenotic adhesions that sometimes even need to be treated surgically. When do you decide to treat somebody surgically? Someone surgically would be someone who was refractory to local treatments and dilator therapy, and or somebody who had complete stenosis to the point of maybe a hematometra if they're on hormone replacement therapy and starting to potentially cycle again. If they've got a vaginal stenosis and the outflow tract is obstructed, then they can get a backup of blood in the cervix and in the uterus that can't come out. And that would be more of a surgical emergency that would be treated with either sort of small surgery under conscious sedation with maybe a small incision into the stenotic band at the top of the vagina or potentially if it's very very bad with complete vaginal reconstruction and that would be something that's done in the hands of a surgical subspecialist. 
they have high recurrence risks? The GVHD is a chronic problem. So typically when you see vulvovaginal GVHD, you're seeing somebody who's got chronic GVHD and it's usually in the background of them having other system problems like skin, liver, eyes, mouth. And unless that systemic GVHD is treated, it's very unlikely that you're going to get complete resolution of the genital symptoms. But this is an ongoing problem. And typically, if you treat them either medically or surgically, you have to do ongoing local therapy to stop the adhesions from um, reforming. And that can be done either with dilator therapy, with digital therapy, with physiotherapy, with sexual penetration, if that's you know what the patient wants to do. But I really try not to encourage women to use sex as therapy because I think it's important to keep those separate so that they're not medicalizing their sexual play. It's amazing how so many of these vulvovaginal conditions that cause scarring, it's the same. And, you know, surgery is not always the answer. There's some extreme cases that need it. But again, it doesn't always fix it because things will happen again. Exactly. Like in all gynecology, you know, sometimes you need surgical treatment as the beginning of therapy. But without using ongoing medical management, the etiology of the surgical problem will happen again. And that's, I think, one of the things that we like as gynecologists best about what we do is we get to do a little bit of everything. So you keep mentioning the medical therapy and vaginal estrogen. Do you want to elaborate a little bit on that? Sure. So there is a lot of overlap between the clinical presentation of vulvovaginal GVHD and the vulvar dermatoses that you guys are so familiar with, to the point actually that we now classify GVHD as either being adhesive like in sclerosis type or an erosive like in planus type. And in the same way that lichen planus and lichen sclerosis are treated similarly, so is the GVHD. So assuming there's a menopausal component, using vaginal estrogen helps keep the cells producing moisture and plump and stops adhesions from forming. So almost everybody can benefit from local estrogen therapy as part of their GVHD management and as part of their menopausal management. The next step is introducing some form of a biologic or an immune modulator. So again, typically a high potency steroid like a clobetazole 0.05% ointment is going to be useful both on the vulva but actually inside the vagina as well. That's where there's a little more overlap with your vaginal lichen planus type and how you get it into the vagina is sort of up to you. So some women will put it on a dilator. Sometimes you can use the applicator that comes with another vaginal cream to get the steroid into the vagina, or sometimes you can use a preparation that's meant to be inserted elsewhere, like a 10% hydrocortisone acetate rectal foam into the vagina. These can be compounded or purchased from a pharmacy with a drug information number. After something like clobetazole, or if it's unresponsive to clobetazole, we sometimes use other biologics like tacrolimus or um, cyclosporin. Again, these are topical and they can be used vaginally, but there's not a lot of great evidence for the use of tacrolimus, um, similar to how there's not a lot of great evidence in the use of the vulvar dermatosis problems. Um, But the women do tend to respond well to using tacrolimus or cyclosporin vaginally for this. And then there's also a lot of inflammation. So we'll often use maybe a two-week course of vaginal clindamycin for women who have a presentation that's more similar to like a DIV because of the anti-inflammatory and antibacterial properties. 
And if there's coexisting candidal disease, I'm a proponent of using something like uh, terraconazole, which is both antifungal and anti-inflammatory, but really any antifungal can do. Keeping in mind that if you use oral antifungals, if they have hepatic involvement of their graft-versus-host disease, you have to be conscientious that you're not causing additional liver damage on top of it. And then after the medical therapies comes the more physical therapies like the dilator therapy or physiotherapy or biofeedback therapy, which is meant to actually break down adhesions and keep the vagina patent. So we often use ointments on the vulva, but I find when you're putting things inside the vagina, it's easier to use a cream because it spreads better. Do you find the same? Um, I tend to like ointments or water-based compounded therapies, like if you were to compound your steroid into like an aquaphor base because it is really slippery still. So depending on how you wanna get it into the vagina, I think you could go either way. I agree that if you're using an applicator, like you were taking the applicator from a vaginal cream, then it makes sense to use more of a cream-based. But if you're going to coat something like a dilator, then I think an ointment has its role. It probably doesn't really matter as long as you're getting it into the vagina, as opposed to when you put it on the vulva and you actually need it to stick because it needs to act more like a barrier. What's interesting with vulvar and vaginal GVHD is that recognizing vulvar GVHD is actually really important because it can precede the vaginal symptoms by on average nine months. So if you see a woman who has the clinical history consistent with the development of genital GVHD, and this is not the majority of patients, like you know that they've had a stem cell transplant and they have vulvar symptoms and they don't yet have vaginal symptoms, treating the vulvar symptoms can stop it from progressing to vaginal, which is a lot harder to treat and has way worse complications associated with it. I get nervous treating postmenopausal women with steroids in the vagina without estrogen because I just worry it's too thin, but I know there can be disagreement about this because it's not studied. What do you think? I mean, I just would put everybody on vaginal estrogen in this situation because it's going to help. So it's not something I think too much about because I can't imagine having one of these patients without starting with estrogen therapy as the first line. And in fact, we actually really like using the vaginal ring for estrogen in the vagina in GVHD patients because it can act as a physical barrier to adhesion formation. So if someone's got really bad symptoms, maybe you start with a cream because it's going to be very painful for them or maybe impossible to insert the ring. But once you get to the point where the vagina is more patent, using the ring can be both a physical barrier and a repository for estrogen therapy. Is GVHD usually diagnosed on a biopsy? It's not necessary. Again, the clinical picture is going to lead you into the direction of GVHD. And let's say you look at the vulva and the vagina and you see that there are the problems that we've described that really overlap a lot with lichen planus or lichen sclerosis. They have the history of a stem cell transplant and they're symptomatic. Well, I mean, to put somebody who's baseline immunocompromised now through a biopsy to prove it really seems like cruel and unusual punishment, but also unnecessary. But it does bring up the fact that the pathologist can't necessarily distinguish under the microscope between GVHD picture and a skin problem picture because they look very similar depending on which subtype of GVHD you have. 
So if you don't tell the pathologist that they've had a stem cell transplant, they may call it lichen sclerosis or lichen planus, depending on what they're seeing. Or if they've been treated with steroids, you may not actually see the hallmark features. So it's really important to give your pathologist a good clinical history if you're going to do a biopsy. But I would say that in the majority of patients, the biopsy is truly unnecessary. So you talked about treating them medically and with physiotherapy and biofeedback. Any other things we need to know about treatment? I mean, like everything, the treatment falls under conservative, medical, and surgical. Where the physiotherapy fits in is really in trying to help women break down their adhesive disease, but also potentially get back to having a vagina that's patent and capacious enough to accommodate penetrative intercourse, if that's what their goals are, or a speculum so that they can have a pap test. So the, I guess the only other thing that's important is recognizing that HPV disease is a problem, that these women should be screened likely annually while they're taking their immunocompromised medications, depending on which province you're in or where you are to follow the guidelines locally, um, and that HPV screening can be really helpful to help lower your index of suspicion for somebody going on to develop, let's say, high-grade changes of their cervix, because if they're HPV negative, even if their cells look funny to the pathologist's when they're looking at the cytology, again, without that clinical history, they're gonna call it a squamous lesion when it very well may not be, so. Yeah, it's one of those tests that's great when it's negative. When it's positive, these cases can be quite difficult, as you know. Yeah. You can't always see the cervix, you're trying to deal with them colposcopy, you can't really tell what's going on, you're not sure. It helps to have them, I think, with an experienced colposcopist for sure. Then you debate whether it's worth going through surgeries to see the cervix? Is it really, I think these are always individualized conversations with the patient, right? Yeah. And I learned from you, it's very important to write on your biopsy (laughs) results to the pathologist, like this patient has GVHD, so that they know what's going on because sometimes you get all these other... It's a completely different frame of reference for the pathologist who's reading, and it's probably one of the single most important pieces of information that you can give them when you're sending either a stenotic lesion that you've brushed or a cervix that you've tried to get to. The pathologist definitely needs to know that. Uh, And then the other thing to keep in mind when you see these women is that if they've had total body radiation or chest wall radiation, then they're actually at quite high risk for breast cancer, and they may qualify for a high-risk breast screening program as well. It's a very interesting disease that I think a lot of people don't know anything about. So thank you for telling us all about it today. Thank you for asking me to come and talk about this. I think it's a really interesting problem that needs to be recognized early and that we have an opportunity to treat women if we see them soon after their transplant. And I'm lucky where we are that we have a good relationship with our hematologic oncologists and they will often send women even before our symptoms present for all of those gynecologic problems that we talked about. And I would encourage anybody who's in a center where stem cell transplants are being done and has an interest in this to reach out and come up with a sort of seamless referral process where the patients really stand to benefit. Yeah, like anything, if it's uh, concentrated in one place, you often get better care with people who see a lot of something. Thank you so much for joining us today. This is, again, Dr. Michelle Jacobson, who is a gynecologist in Toronto.